Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. You are listening to an encore presentation of Afternoons with Bill Arnold. Faith, hope, and clarity in a special repeat performance. And a warm welcome to the afternoon show. I am so glad you've joined me today, and thank you for uh, tuning in. I had such an interesting conversation last week with Dr. Joel Lawrence because I ran by him, my new friend, Same Seven Questions, and we uh, had this fascinating conversation, and it went so deep and that we didn't get to all seven questions. So I said, Joel, can you come back, and let's do it again. Let's, uh, let's finish it, and then dig deep into the first question because his insight was so wonderful. He is uh, the executive director at the Center for Pastor Theologians. His name is Dr. Joel Lawrence. Joel, welcome back. Thanks. Good to be back. Yeah. So uh, my first question was, is man separated from God? And you dug in with us in Genesis and took us to a place that I I hadn't gone to before. Yeah. Let's recap. Yeah. Yeah. So it it is an... um I'm fascinated by the first four chapters of Genesis. As am I. What, what, what's going on there? What As the stories I. that are being told? Uh, what that's telling us about God? What that's telling us about about humanity? And what we kind of got on, into last week a little bit was what that's telling us about the sin story. And I and I said, I think sometimes we miss some pieces out of the sin story and in, in how we tell that story. And if we do that, then we're also missing some pieces out of the salvation story and how we tell that story. So I, I've just found in my own personal journey in, in teaching this in a classroom setting, in church settings, that uh, digging into some of the details of Genesis 3 opens up some really interesting avenues mm-hmm. into what God is doing in the world. And so, um, you know, really, before you get to Genesis 3, of course, you're in Genesis 1 and 2. And I think as we think about the salvation story, we have to begin with um, what was God's intent, for creating humanity. And, you know, a kind of a, a fairly standard theological answer to that is God wanted us to participate in his glory. Mm-hmm. The, the God didn't need us. God didn't need to create us. He wanted to create us, not out of a lack of him, of his own, but out of a desire for us to share with him in, in his life as, as participants in that. Um, and so he created humanity in, in Genesis 1. Of course, we we have the story. He creates us in his image. I think a, a key part of the image, uh, understanding the image of God is that the relational component of it, that God is Father, Son, Spirit, creates us as those who can participate relationally with him, that we are we are meant to be in fellowship with God. That's why your, your question on are we separated from God is is so important mm-hmm. because it's around that relational idea. So if we're, we're created to be in relationship with God, that that was what it means to image God, then he puts us in his presence. That's, I think, what Eden really is about. It's, 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 it's not simply about kind of the geography of the place. It's about this is where God and his image are united in perfect fellowship. Right? And so... Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 is, is telling that story. And then the vocation that God gives to humanity, which is to spread out uh, around the earth to perpetuate that presence of God everywhere in humans dwelling 
in God's presence. So I think as we begin the salvation story, I have found oftentimes we tend to tell the story fairly individually about I'm created by God, I'm separated from God, I'm saved by God, where I think the the inflection in Scripture is more on we. Mm-hmm. Certainly that involves me, right? but it's, it's, it's not simply about individuals. It's about a, the community. God created us in community. We're to fellowship with God and with neighbor, mm-hmm. love God, love neighbor. And in doing that, then, we are participating in the glory of God. So then you come to Genesis chapter 3, and we have the story of the separation that takes place. And this is what we were digging into a little bit last yes. week. That, and I've um, studied it since, yeah. so I've got questions for you. But All right, well, uh, let me give lead. a bit of an overview, and Please. then we can, we can dive in. So I, I think what's going on here, of course, the, the serpent comes into the garden. He's coming to, to, to Eve, and he says uh, to Eve, you, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Eve says we may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden. You must not touch it or you will die. The serpent says you will not certainly die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. And so he's making her a, a, an offer to have a different level of existence is mm-hmm. kind of the way I would interpret this, right? You're created in this human level, but you're not actually what you could be. There's something more out there for you. You can be like God. And then he defines that as knowing good and evil. And this is the piece I think that we often don't sit with and ask, what is going on with that? What are the implications of that? seems to me one of the key implications is we weren't meant to know good and evil. As created created beings, we weren't meant to know good and evil. We weren't meant to sit and have to navigate between the good and the evil. What were we meant to know? We were meant to know God. We were meant to be in fellowship with God, to walk with God. And as we walk with God and trust in him, we're not navigating choices between good and evil, between right and wrong. We're simply walking with God in his presence, and he's guiding us Mm -hmm. along the way. So, Joel, we're not supposed to know about good and evil, but Eve seemed to know about obedience or disobedience. Yeah. So there's a right and a wrong? uh, There is. So the way that I understand this, the way that I I talk about this with um, students when they they raise this question is, like when my kids were younger, right, they they were playing in the front yard, and I said to them, don't go into the street. Um, they didn't really have a conception of, of what might happen if they went into the street. I did. Mm-hmm. Their choice shouldn't have been, it wasn't to be analyze whether or not going into the street is a good thing or a bad thing. It's dad said, don't go into the street. I'm going to trust that dad has my best interest. They didn't have the total picture of all the implications of what this would mean for them. They were meant to to trust in me as the loving father who looks out for them. So I think similarly with, with Adam and Eve, they knew that they were put in a position where they were being called to walk with God, to dwell with God, to trust in God. But 
the implications of what would meant what would have what it would have meant for them not to do that. I don't know that they didn't know all of that in their minds, but the decision that they had was not what's the right thing to do or the wrong thing to do here. Mm-hmm. The decision they had was trust God or trust the serpent. Mm-hmm. And I think that choice, we often think the choice that we're created with is the choice between good and evil. I, I don't think that's the choice we were created with. Yeah. The choice we were created with was trust God or or trust self, or trust the serpent. All right, so you're in the garden, and mm-hmm. there's a serp- a talking serpent. <laughs> yep. Now, it seems that after the serpent did what he did, uh, the Lord God said, because of this, you'll crawl on your belly. So possibly the serpent was not crawling on his belly. Yeah. And so it was presenting itself in some other form other than being a snake on the ground, right? That's my understanding. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I don't know that we have a super I, clear I, yeah. picture from the text, but that's my understanding I, is that the there's a result for the serpent in this as well, which is takes a different form. Okay. Yeah. So you go back to this couple, there's two people on earth and they're being presented with something. And where is Adam in this conversation? You know, if, if somebody, if a Boy Scout comes and says, do you want to buy a Christmas wreath for your door? Yeah. Don't you say, well, let me check with my wife real quick yeah. to see if yeah. we haven't already ordered one. Yeah. It, the, the, Where's the conversation between these two? It's not recorded. The indication here seems to be Adam's right there. Okay. Right. That, that Adam is, is with her because as soon as she takes of the tree, of the fruit of the tree, she then offers it to Adam and he takes it. it there isn't any indication in the narrative that he was somewhere else okay. and then he came back. Okay. So I, I think I think the the culpability here is on both of them. Eve is kind of the lead character in terms of the dialogue with the serpent, but it's not. I think that Adam was somewhere else, and then he came back and stumbled across this scene. He is he is implicated here. Yeah, in the same. So the totality of humanity, which is what the image of God represents, male and female, the totality of humanity is implicated in this act of rebellion. Mm-hmm. It just seems that Adam could have stepped up at the time and said, whoa, 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 hang on, Eve. Yep. We, we are under instruction not to eat of this, yeah. this fruit. He, he could have. He, I know. He didn't. I get um, it. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it, one of the people who talks about this is, is Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who we've talked about before in the past. Um, and the way that Bonhoeffer interprets this is the moment that Eve and, by implication, Adam entertained the possibility is the moment that they doubted God's mm. word. It wasn't the the biting into the fruit, whatever it was, that was the moment. It was at the moment where they entered a conversation with the serpent and, and started to kind of think about this and navigate this and, 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 and start kind of sitting in that place of, well, what should we do here? What is the right thing? At that moment, they've already lost their, mm. their obedience, their, their trust. And yeah. God, and now they're pondering other possibilities that put them in this godlike position that sounds very attractive to them, and as Satan often does, gives us a promise that ends up not delivering what it is that he said would come from well, that. Well promise. said, well said, Dr. Joel Lawrence. He's the executive director of the Center for Pastor Theologians. We're talking about new friends, same seven questions, because we did not complete all the questions last time, and guess what? We're not going to do it this time either. I'm pretty sure, but we're going to come back and continue our discussion in Genesis chapter 3 in just a minute.
You are listening to an encore presentation of Afternoons with Bill Arnold. Faith, hope, and clarity in a special repeat performance. Well, I will tell you what I did during the break. I took a sip of water, and then I offered uh, water to my guest, Dr. Joel Lawrence, and he refused. <laughs> Doesn't want to change the chemistry of the zone he's in right now, which is fascinating. But we are talking about... Uh, are, is man separated from God? That was the first question in our series of new friends, same seven questions. And when I had Joel on last week, we just didn't get it finished. So we're going to continue to not get it finished in this next 10 minutes. Uh, and you said something during the break, uh, which you did instead of drinking your bottle of water. And Rosie said, you must repeat that. So, yeah, I, I, we were talking about the the responsibility here, yes. right? And and I think what... Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve yes, responsibility. responsibility. And mutual responsibility here. And I think sometimes the way that Genesis 3 gets gets interpreted is once in church history, and you can see this, it, it oftentimes becomes a way to demean women. It oftentimes becomes a way to blame men. And I think what's important here is what we see is a mutual responsibility, and if Adam and Eve as male and female here are representative of the of the entire human race, which I think is how they're depicted in this, these first chapters of Genesis, they're kind of the head of the human race. I think one of the key stories that is being told here about humanity is that the desire in all human beings to seek to move beyond what we were created to be in a sinful, rebellious way to try to claim life in places that, that we can't get it, in our failure to trust that God has given us life and that God will give us that life. So I think it's important as we, it can be easy to kind of like try to parcel out blame, what did Eve do, what did Adam do? Mm-hmm. I, I think it's just the story is telling us there is a mutual failure here, and that is representative of the the totality of, of human life in rebellion against God. Mm-hmm. And when they realized they were naked, yeah, uh, who were they ashamed in front of God? Because certainly not each other, right? No, I think both. I think both. <laughs> okay. So this is no. This is a really interesting. This is a really interesting point, um, and it, and it tracks with this this knowledge of good and evil, and okay. how that connects into this. So so yeah, a little bit later on in the story, um, God says, you know, the Lord God called to to the man, "Where are you?" He answered, "I heard you were in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid." And then in verse 11, it says, who told you that you were naked? Which is a really interesting question. It is. Because I think we tend to kind of know when we're naked, right? We, we, we generally have a, have a knowledge. That yeah. that. So, make, Rosie, make a note. Joel said something really, <laughs> really <laughs> important. It is noted. That's really yeah, profound. Like. <laughs> yes. yes. <laughs> if, you don't, if you remember one thing from today. Yeah. You know, <laughs> no. Um, but he asks, who told you? Mm-hmm. Which indicates before that... They weren't focused on themselves. Mm-hmm. Like their their attention wasn't on themselves. Why? Because they were created to dwell in the presence of God and in the presence of the neighbor. They were they were outward facing, right? They they were they were selves, but their attention was on God and their attention was on the neighbor, on the other. And so what happens when we take on the knowledge of good and evil? is we turn from being outward-facing people, loving God, loving neighbor, to now being turned in on ourselves. I think I might have said this last week. Martin Luther has this phrase, the heart turned in on itself, that this is the human condition in our rebellion against God. Because we're no longer free 
to love God and love neighbor. Now we're turned in on ourselves. And what happens when we get turned in on ourselves is we know that we're guilty. We know that, that, that we have transgressed. And, and now what we're having to do is cover, which is exactly what they do. They, you know, physically, they need to be covered. God, in his grace, covers them. But that covering is, I think, a really deep kind of psychological thing. Mm, spiritual psychological thing that's going on what we all do to cover ourselves what we all do in our self-protection now we're not free to love our neighbor in the way that god created us to be we're not free to love god in the way that we were created to now we have all kinds of props that we use to present the person (laughs) that we want to present (laughs) we have all kinds of ways that we go about hiding that shame and, and now hiding the inner self because when we turn into ourselves, we, we get into an, an improper a, a, a relationship with ourselves that we weren't intended to have. We weren't created to be in that kind of an inward turn. And that brings, again, all kinds of implications spiritually, psychologically, socially. Hmm. But there's a lot in Genesis 3, isn't there? There's a whole lot there. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. And, and another, another point I'd make is I, I think... Um, it, it really, and Bonhoeffer talks about this too, he, he perceives this as this is where the, our conscience is created, that conscience is not something we were created with originally. We are created to be in relationship with God. What happens when we, when we turn to ourselves is now, rather than being in a right relationship with God and being kind of turned toward him, now we're in an internal dialogue with ourself around the knowledge of good and evil and that conscience is that internal dialogue with ourself. So the way that I think about this is conscience is the opposite of prayer. So prayer, not just think about prayer as folding our hands and closing our eyes and asking for stuff, but prayer in a more, in a, in its broader biblical sense, which is being aware that we're in the presence of God and being attuned to God. When you lose that, prayerful life, which I think is what Genesis 1 and 2, we see Adam and Eve walking in the garden with God, being in his presence. Mm -hmm. Now they have turned in on themselves. And now instead of being in a dialogue with God, relational fellowship with him, now they're in a dialogue with themselves. And that's navigating now through my own knowledge of good and evil. How am I going to make my way through the world? And that's an existence that we weren't intended to have. That's an, that's an existence that we weren't meant to have. That's a weight we weren't meant to bear because we were supposed to walk in the freedom of being in God's presence, and he will guide us through. That's profound. That's almost more profound than you know when you're naked. Yes. Good, good, good. We're getting some good stuff out yeah, of this. Yeah, you, you're crushing it today, <laughs> Dr. Joel Lawrence. Uh, so thank you for that. Yeah. Anything else we want to mine out of uh, Genesis 3? You know, I, I think just uh, you know, as it goes on and, and the, the curse— of God in, in Genesis three. Um, one of the things I think we often see is that there is the, there's the breakdown in relationships here. That's what's really going on. This is what sin does. It breaks our relationship to God. It breaks our relationship to neighbor, but it also breaks our relationship to the, to the creation, to the created order. So now work is going to be laborious, right? And mm-hmm. you're going to have to earn their living by the sweat of their brow, the earth will produce thorns and thistles for them. So when when you see what's the implications of Genesis 3 is that's pronounced in the curse, it's like this cosmic breakdown 
that happens that is, I think, so profound for our understanding of, of the world today and, and what, what sin does to not just us in kind of our, our own individual lives, even our relationships, but, but what it does to the very creation itself, which is why I think we see later uh, in Romans chapter 8 and then, of course, in Revelation, the healing of the earth is a significant part of the salvation story and what God is, is doing through his grace through the through Christ through the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. So when it says "cursed is the ground because of you through painful toil," yeah, uh, are, are you saying to me that I have a cush job at Faith Radio? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> I feel like that's what you're saying. Of all the jobs, this is this is probably this is a pretty good one. So <laughs> well, I've got a pretty a, good one too. This is a, a really good, good job. Yeah. Yes, yes. Yeah. Dr. Joel Lawrence is my guest. All right, Joel, I have failed miserably in trying to get through all seven questions because we only have a couple minutes left. So maybe I we I can do one more. Sure. Okay. Yeah. And then we'll just get you back again. So um has God has not has God given us all we need for life and godliness as believers? Yeah, I I think uh th- that is the promise of the Holy Spirit. And it, and, th- and this connects into this this story. I mean, with the salvation story, right? What God has done. I I think one of the ways to understand the coming of the Holy Spirit and the spirits coming into our lives is that this is the capacity now that God has given us through his grace to once again be in his presence, to walk with him, right? that the spirit is the, the means by which we are being made one with God again, made one with neighbor again. And so I, I think the, the most important thing that God has given us for life and salvation is, is he's given us his Holy Spirit. And the spirit, as we rely upon the spirit, as we trust in the spirit— we don't try to navigate through our own knowledge of good mm. and evil, but rather walk by the Spirit and keep in step with the Spirit, then it is through that that God delivers salvation, which is himself. Salvation is the presence of God. It is to be united back to him. And and so the, the grace of God has been poured out upon us in the pouring out of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost and then the Spirit's work in the church. Mm-hmm. That's It's been Really nice having you back, and thank you for continuing uh, and to do a deeper dive into question one, which was, is man separated from God? And I thought thought you did a really nice job of uh, not only uh, explaining, but recapping and giving us a lot to think about. So thank you once again for being here, Dr. Joel Lawrence. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. All right. I'm going to have to process this a little bit more tonight on my own. I think, Rosie, you too, huh? Yeah. Absolutely. I so, can't wait to listen to this back. So good. So good. It's always a good time to show Christ's love to a hurting world through acts of kindness. So you can join our Kindness Always initiative at MyFaithRadio.com. You should check it out. And if you want to receive a daily email featuring a nice scripture graphic, you can sign up for the Verse of the Day email also at MyFaithRadio.com. We will take a short break and be back with more in just a minute. You are listening to an encore presentation of Afternoons with Bill Arnold, Faith, Hope, and Clarity, and a special repeat performance. Jump in your car. Yeah. What's for dinner? Hey. It's the afternoon show with Bill Arnold. 
Okay, maybe a small heads up. Our uh, discussion that we're about to have uh, will have some adult themes. You've got very young ears. It may be a good time to turn the volume down and catch the podcast in its entirety. And you can always do that at myfaithradio.com. My guest is uh, Jessica Harris. She's a writer and a speaker and has uh, created um, a blog for Christian women struggling with pornography and sexual sin. Her book is called Quenched. Discovering God's Abundant Grace for Women Struggling with Pornography and Sexual Shame. Hello, Jessica. Hello, Bill. How are you? I am, uh, you know, happy that you're uh, with us today. It's a difficult topic. I thought just men had issues with lust. Right. <laughs> common common misconception. Okay. Oh, yes. All right. So I'd love for you maybe just to give us a, a little share about your story with this addiction and, and why you think it's important uh, for this uh, this book that you've written. Absolutely. So my my story is that I grew up in a Christian home, a conservative Christian home, grew up in the church, and I was exposed to pornography online when I was 13. And I'm an older millennial, so this is back in the day of, of dial-up and floppy disks. Um, and I was just researching for school. I was not searching for anything that had anything to do with sex or that topic. Uh, and a porn video was on one of the, on one of the websites that I had found. And so um, I clicked on that video just because I was clicking through videos as one does. Even nowadays, we kind of like scroll through social media and just mindlessly watch things. And so I was clicking through different videos and watching them. And one of them happened to be a, a video of hardcore pornography and that, triggered pop-up after pop-up after pop-up that I couldn't seem to close out of, and it drew me into an actual website. Um, And at the time, it was like, oh, this is what everyone's been hush-hush about. You know, this Mm -hmm. is, my family didn't talk about it. At church, this is the middle of the purity culture movement. At church, it was, the beginning and the end of the conversation was, just don't have sex until you're married. And so for me, at 13, I thought, well, this isn't, this isn't technically sex. Like I'm not, I'm not doing anything wrong by watching this. Like I'm not going to get pregnant. I'm not going to get an STD. Like I am totally safe and this is fine to do this. So it became a hobby of mine. Um, and then eventually within a, a few years became a full blown, I would call it an addiction where I was, calling my mom to lie to her about why the internet would be tied up. The phone would be tied up all afternoon. I would rearrange my life as much as I could as a 17 year old around it. And eventually it started to affect my life where I wasn't getting a lot of sleep. My grades were suffering in school. And I thought, you know, I need to probably tone this back a little bit. Like I need to get this under control. So I tried to stop. I tried to cut myself off at two hours max instead of the four or the five that I would do after school of watching videos online. I tried to just do one or two, and it, I couldn't stop. I found that I couldn't stop. And so I'm 17. I'm still going to church, like still in a Christian family, and I'm going, who on earth do I go to to ask for help for this? Like, I don't know who to talk to about this because no one's talking about this. No one that I, in in my brain, because no one was talking about it, no one else knew about it. Like no one in my life knew that this even existed. So then I started searching for help online and everything I found was for women. 
or for men. And so I thought, man, am I the only woman in the world who has managed to find this? Is this not a normal thing for women to, to do? Now what do I do? Because now not only is my church not talking about this at all, but there's nothing out there for someone like me. So what on earth am I supposed to do? And that started this journey of trying to figure out how I was going to break free. And I went out to off to a Christian college and was caught there. And I was initially very happy that I was caught because I thought, okay, a Christian college will have seen this before. They deal with tons of, of young women. And so they'll, have, they'll know what to do. They'll know how to help me. And instead I was met with, we know this wasn't you. Women just don't have this problem. And it just started to heap on shame in my life. And I thought, wow, I really am the only woman in the world. And because I'm the only woman in the world, I'm sorry, God, I guess there's no way that you could really love me. And so at 17, grew up in a Christian home, I gave up. And I thought, if I can't be the good Christian girl who used to be addicted to pornography, then I don't have a choice. I'm going to have to be the porn star who used to be a Christian. Like in my brain, that was the only thing that made sense was, was giving up and giving in. And if you can't be them, you just join them. And so that that silence and that shame and that there's no way that women can have this problem just led me down this path that I didn't want to go down, but I didn't feel like I had a choice. Wow. Jessica Harris is my guest, and her book is called Quenched, Discovering God's Abundant Grace for Women Struggling with Pornography and Sexual Shame. So, Jessica, um, maybe you would give us some of these signposts of shame and why, why it's so important to be uh, recognizing them. Right. So in the book, I go through and I talk about um, the three signposts of shame as presented by Dan Allender and Tremper Longman in their book, The Cry for the, the Cry of the Soul, which is a book about shame. And Dan is a, a legendary voice in the, in the field of pornography and sexual desire. So the first of those is this absorption with self, which is, I just, it doesn't matter what people around me say. It doesn't matter what their character is around me, I am only concerned with my failures, my flaws, what I have done wrong. And that is the only thing that I can see. And so I'm, I'm worthless. I'm a fraud. I'm a hypocrite. It, it is an obsession with who I believe I am. And it doesn't matter that God is loving. It doesn't matter that my spouse is very gracious. It doesn't matter that this, this, my family would never disown me. I am obsessed with what I believe I've done wrong. The second is a flight from exposure. And we see this best in in Genesis, really, where Adam and Eve sin, and they cover themselves up from each other, and they also run and try to hide from God. And so we just don't want to be found out. And this is is the cover-up, in a way. It's the the belief that if you really knew who I was, you wouldn't love me. And so I have to protect whatever it is that I'm ashamed of. And for me in my life, this looked like becoming an even more quote unquote perfect Christian and the good Christian girl, because I did not want to be found out. And I did not, I would do anything. I would break off relationships if it meant protecting this secret. Mm -hmm. And then the third one is violence. Um, And that sounds like what, but not necessarily like physical violence and not necessarily geared towards others. It can also be towards yourself And so this is just 
anger and rage and you are you're cutting off relationships you're lashing out with people or you're just harming yourself so for me I did resort to self-harm at one point in my story when I was struggling so much to try to break free I just felt like man I I need to discipline and punish myself in order to be able to to get out of this Um, it also manifested as anger towards other people I was actually sent to anger management counseling in college because I was I would get so angry with people and I think it was because if you really knew what was going on, you you wouldn't care about me. So I'm going to make you not care about me in a way. Mm. Like I'm going to make sure that you you don't. A care. preemptive strike. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> if you knew, you wouldn't like me. So I'll make you not like me in advance. Right. I'll make sure that you never try to like me. Exactly. Right. Um, wow. Is that counterproductive? Yeah. <laughs> It is, it is. But in the moment, it makes total sense because shame presents itself as something that's trying to protect you uh-huh. from getting your heart broken. And so if you think that someone getting close is going to be detrimental to you, like they're going to figure out what you're you're doing, then it makes sense to go, well, you need to stay away. And if you try to get close, I'm going to keep pushing you uh-huh. away. And if you seem to be more persistent than that, then I'm going to hurt you so that you will stay away. And it's just mm. it's one of the one of the counterproductive things that shame just does. Jessica, would the word rejection come up? Would you would think they would reject me, so I'm going to go ahead and reject them before they can reject me. Absolutely. I think that that's a really good way of of looking at it. Like you if I if you knew this about me, if right. you knew that I wasn't the perfect Christian girl, then you would not be my friend. You would not be interested in me. At one point, I, was, I, I thought my family wouldn't even want to be around me anymore. And so it is. It's this cutting off of other people. I'm going to cut you before you can, you can cut me. Like, yeah. I'm, going to, I'm going to take care of this. I'm in control of this. You're in control. That, that's the thing I was going to say. It's a control issue because you get to then reject them, and you can go back to your isolation and your self-survival protecting your secrets, um, and then they can't reject you. Right. Yeah. All right, let's talk about, um, you talk about false freedom instead of true freedom. I want to know what the difference is. So in the, in the book, Quench, I walk through the narrative of John 4 and the woman at the well. And we all know, if you've grown up in church, you know the story, like Jesus is living water and everyone's all happy. But when Jesus offers that to the woman, he, he offers the living water, and he says, whoever drinks of this water in the well will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never thirst again. And she responds in a way that I've always found interesting. She says, give me this water so that I don't thirst, and I don't have to come here anymore. Mm-hmm. And that, like, that's not what's going to happen. You know, it's, it's not, you're still going to need water for other things, and so you're still going to have to make this walk. And if that walk represents her shame, he's not, he's not necessarily in that offer, freeing her from that the way she thinks he is. Mm -hmm. So he's not, he's not piping this living water to wherever she stands. And I think sometimes when we want freedom, what we want is freedom to stay stuck where we are. And so instead of getting free from pornography, for instance, we just go, I just want freedom from all the judgment and the shame. I need people to stop judging me for this. I need people to just accept that this is who I am and this is how I am and there's nothing wrong with this. And I want to kind of cut out the shame. And how do we do that? Well, we do that by cutting out those people who we think are shaming us. And so we cut out our families. We cut out our friends. We cut out God. And we just 
and we say, ha, now I'm free to live the way I want without all of these judgy people around me. But Mm -hmm. what we've done is we've just isolated ourselves. And that's not, that's not the freedom that God offers us. (laughs) Idols are, Uh, idols are cruel masters, aren't they? They are, they are, they're terrible masters. Mm -hmm. So I try to encourage people that freedom happens in community and grace calls us into relationship. So if whatever you're experiencing is driving you away from relationship, that's not of God. Like God's a God of reconciliation. And so he wants to draw us close and draw us in and restore broken things. And so if whatever path you're on is to just live with your broken things and to cut away people, then that's not, that's not God drawing you down that path. Mm -hmm. And Jessica, I love that you went into John chapter four, because it's really a a wonderful illustration of how all of us are, are looking for acceptance and and intimacy and unconditional love. Mm -hmm. So I like that. We're going to take a little break. We'll come back more with Jessica Harris. Her book is called Quenched. Discovering God's Abundant Grace for Women Struggling with Pornography and Sexual Shame. We'll be right back. You are listening to an encore presentation of Afternoons with Bill Arnold. Faith, Hope, and Clarity in a special repeat performance. If you just jumped in the car or turned on the radio, I just want to give you a heads up. Our content today is uh, sensitive. And if you have little ones, little ears, it may be a okay time to turn the volume down and check out our podcast later. So having said that, I'll pause just for a second and then uh, bring back Jessica Harris. She is my guest who authored a book called Quenched, Discovering God's Abundant Grace for Women Struggling with Pornography and Sexual Shame. So I want to go back to the Women at the Well encounter on John 4, Jessica, because you write in your book that some, some of us fear an encounter with God. Say more about that. Oh, excuse me. <laughs> um... I think a lot of us, when we think of of coming to God, and I, I obviously deal a lot with women, but I think this can be a universal experience, and no matter what you struggle with, we can be afraid of his judgment or his frustration. And I think for this book, my heart in writing this book, was so many women were coming to me and saying, I don't even want to open my Bible. I don't even... Like, what's the point of praying? God's just mad at me. Mm-hmm. He's just done with me. He probably thinks I'm gross. He probably thinks I'm disgusting. He probably thinks I'm a hypocrite. And I just picture him in heaven saying something like, why are you trying to come to me? Like, I, I want nothing to do with you. So we, we fear that rejection that we were talking about in the first part, but on a cosmic level. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, what does it feel to be completely rejected by God? You know, and that's, that's a terrifying thought. And so it's better in people's minds to just stay distant because then you don't know, right? You, you, you're not rejected if you don't even try. And so they stay distant from God and they don't want to try to have a relationship or have that interaction with him because then they can imagine that maybe he wouldn't reject them. But there's this fear that if I, I do try to have a relationship with God or if I do 
reach out that he will reject me and completely cast me off. And then what, then what do I do when that's not his heart for us at all? Again, his, his heart is reconciliation and to draw us into, into himself and to, to come into relationship with us. And his, his heart, even from the beginning has always been for us and has been for pursuit. And he has, he has come after us, not like in a bad way, like I'm going to get you, but like in a, in an, I'm going to rescue you. I'm coming for you. I'm coming to, to set you free. But we just, we have it in our minds and whether that's just sometimes the church cultures that we grew up in. I grew up in a very conservative church culture where there was this fear that if you didn't meet the standard, like there was a set of rules to meet. And then if you didn't meet those, then God wanted nothing to do with you. Mm. And that's just a terrifying thing to think of for some people. It's just, a, and it's not the truth either, but it's just very fear inducing for some. Jessica, what is the firefighting mode and how can we prevent the fire in the first place? Right. So, the, the idea of the firefighting mode is just something that I, as we're talking about Jesus being a living water, so often I think we kind of keep that in our back pocket as like a break in case of emergency. <laughs> and so it's, it's, oh no, now I'm sitting down at the computer. Okay, let me shoot up a quick prayer because Jesus, you know, needs to save me from, from this fire that has now started of, of lust or whatever sin you might struggle with, whether mm-hmm. it's anger or envy. It's not just this. But we, we tend to just kind of pull out our prayers and our walk with God or the whole walking in the Spirit thing in the heat of the moment when we're already tumbling down a hill into failure. And what, we're, what God promises us is not like a fire extinguisher. <laughs> that's, not what he's, that's not what he's giving us. And I, I say in the book, like, when all you're doing is stuck with fighting fires, then you're just left with a bunch of burned dead things. You're not left with the abundant life that, that Christ promises us. And so how do we make that connection between the living water that Jesus offers and the abundant life of Christ? And, and you do that by dwelling, by abiding, by letting this living water be a stream that runs through constantly as opposed to something that we just keep in our back pocket and pull out in case of emergency. It has to be what we are dwelling in and what we are abiding in. And I think so many of us Christians, when we're fighting various sins and struggles in our lives, we don't abide in Christ. We don't take a drink, if you will, from that living water. We don't let Jesus flow through our lives and impact our lives and nourish our lives. We just live our lives as we always have, but then we think we have this cool little tool in times of need. And yes, he is there for us in times of need. And yes, he does promise us a way to escape, but he promises us so much more. And so many of us are missing out on that because we're just looking to him as an emergency escape hatch when what he's really wanting is not just to help us escape in times of temptation, but to help us live a life where temptation doesn't need to take root, where it can't, where it can't draw us in, where things are so saturated with him and so full of him that they're, they can't catch fire. Mm-hmm. 
um, if you will. And so I, I say in the book, like what what doesn't catch fire very well is well things that are wet, like things that are damp, things that are, you know, if you cut down a tree, you can't light it on fire right away unless it was already dead. Like mm-hmm. it has to dry out. And so when we are staying in Christ and dwelling in him and letting him fill us, we will find that the temptation loosens its grip and it's less and less. Mm-hmm. Jessica Harris is my guest. She's written a book called Quenched and grew up in a conservative, God-fearing Christian home. And at 13, found herself gravitating into the world of pornography and became kind of a full-blown addict. And even in your book, uh, Jessica, you write a letter to those who don't struggle. Now, why did you feel that that was important to include in your book? Because I think that some people, when you when you don't have the struggle, especially when it's something like this, right? We're not really talking about women struggling with this. This is a relatively not a new problem, but a new discussion that we're having. So people who aren't in it might not really know how they can help. <laughs> and the problem is they also don't understand how they can hurt. Mm-hmm. And so I really felt like it was important to talk to those people and to encourage them. I wanted it to be an encouragement to people that, hey, this doesn't have to be part of your story for you to be able to help a woman who is living this story. Like you are able to communicate grace to her because that's really the point. The point of it all is that these women who are struggling with this, it is such as a struggle that is shrouded in so much shame and so much stigma that they just feel like even God can't even handle what they're going through right now. And as Christians, we have this great opportunity to say that that's not true, that there's grace for this struggle as well, and that we are not afraid to have this conversation. And so I wanted to emphasize that because for me, the difference between my the deepest part of my struggle and my journey of freedom was two different conversations. And one was women don't have this problem. This, we, this wasn't you. This couldn't have been you. And the other was, we know that some of you have this problem. We want to help you. And so the contrast of those two conversations was really life and death for me. And so I wanted to encourage people who might not know about this struggle, who might not have had this struggle, to know that they still have a role to play in helping women find life and freedom. Mm-hmm. I would guess, Jessica, there's more women that would have sexual shame than a pornography addiction. However, if you don't struggle with either one of those and you want to have a a conversation in your church and maybe change the conversation from zero conversation to something, um, how can, how can women uh, bring that conversation to the church? Right. I think the best, I I tell people they're always welcome to throw me under the bus. (laughs) Like, they're always welcome to talk about me and see, like, get a temperature of, like, what the church thinks about that. Um, But honestly, if you're someone who's in leadership and you're able to have that conversation, it's as easy as the word and. That's what I tell pastors. It's as easy as saying men and women can struggle with this. Um, Talk to your sons and your daughters about what they're doing online. But really, we have a blueprint even in the Gospels and a lot of good opportunities, I think, as we look at the life of Jesus to see how he interacts with women with sordid pasts, if you will. And you've got the woman caught in adultery. You have the woman at the well here. You have the woman who anoints his feet with oil, and there's debate about what her issue was. But the 
consensus is that the man standing there said, oh, if he had any idea who she was, he wouldn't be letting her worship him right now. Then you have the woman with the issue of blood. And while that's not a sexual sin per se at all, she would have been ceremonially unclean Mm -hmm. and outcast from the population. So you have these examples of how Jesus interacts with these women. And we talk about these stories. We preach about these stories. And so I feel like it's as easy as making a side note, even in that sermon of like, hey, you know, this is this is God's heart for all of us. But in this story, it's specifically for a, a woman caught in adultery. And I think just in the church, we struggle so much with believing that Christ, the good Christian women, you know, wearing white on their wedding day could have these kinds of issues. And so mm-hmm. it's it's just as easy as, as breaking it down and saying women are also created to be like we are sexual creatures as well. Mm-hmm. And that there's nothing wrong or dirty or bad or you know, Proverbs 5 harlot about us yeah. <laughs> having God-given desires and drives. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you're talking about Proverbs 31, you can also say, like, hey, the Proverbs 31 woman also, you know, was a sexual woman. Yeah. You know, she wasn't non-sexual. Yeah. So. Jessica, thank you so much. It was a delight having you on. Mm-hmm. Thank you for having you me. Bet. Jessica Harris, her book is Quenched. That wraps up our show for the day and for the week. Thank you for supporting Faith Radio. See you next week. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.